This episode is sponsored by Kendo UI. Kendo UI allows you to build better apps faster. They have a comprehensive library ranging from data grids and charts to buttons and sliders. Plus, you can use their components as plain JavaScript as well as in Angular, React, and Vue. They have a large collection of customizable popular themes like Bootstrap and Material. Go check them out at javascriptjabber.com slash kendoui. Hi, everybody, and welcome to another episode of JavaScript Jabber. I'm Corey House, and on the panel today, we have Amy Knight. Hello from Nashville. And uh, also, Chuck may be coming in and out, but he's also very busy with running a React conference today online. Uh, for our guest today, we have Ben Clinkenbeard. Ben, you want to say hi? Hello, everyone. So Ben, in uh, Kentucky, in Kentucky, huh? There we go. We've got to get the location. This is key. You're super close right. to me. Where in Kentucky are you? Yeah, I didn't realize Amy was so close. I'm actually at the very northern tip of Kentucky. Okay. So I usually yeah. just say that I live in Cincinnati. Okay, so you are a little further than me. Anyways, carry on. Yeah. So for today, we were going to talk about D3, and I understand Ben, uh, you you are fairly familiar with this project. I am. Quite familiar, yes. <laughs> well, good, because I don't know it very well at all. You want to give us, uh, for those that don't know what D3 is, tell us a little bit about what it is, why I'd want to use it. Sure. So D3.js is what I sort of refer to as the de facto standard for data visualization on the web. Um, if you are targeting you know, regular web browsers, then you are probably going to end up using D3 or some library built on top of D3. Uh, the name D3 stands for data-driven documents, and that really does sort of reflect its philosophy for how you write your code because it's all about sort of creating a DOM structure from your data, which probably sounds familiar to anybody with React. Um, but so D3 has you use sort of declarative code to tell it what you want, and then it figures out all the you know, little browser inconsistencies of like, do I set this as an attribute or a property and all these different things and it creates the nodes for you. Um, so it's super, super powerful, um, can be a little bit intimidating because it is very low level uh, in places and there's a very large wide API, um, but it doesn't have to be hard to learn. And that's sort of what I'm uh, trying to get across to everybody. So I actually do have a bunch of questions about that. So yeah, a lot of people, usually say that D3, there's like a, there's a pretty steep learning curve. How much of that learning curve is D3 and how much of it is just like learning the new, like learning different web APIs. Um, and then, you know, being, having a like good foundation in math. Yeah. So, um, I, well, first I should start off and say my math is pretty horrible. Um, I, distinctly chose a major in college where I would not have to take any college level math classes. Um, actually, I took a few, but the basketball players were in there too. So that all the time, nothing, nothing, but they <laughs> tend to take fairly easy math classes. Um, but anyway, so, um, so the, the math part, not a concern at all. Um, in terms, I'm, I'm going to sort of address this backwards. In terms of the web APIs, that is a very good thing to bring up and something that I've sort of realized as, as I started teaching people D3, I realized that SVG was actually sort of a, a building block that uh, you almost certainly need to understand to do any real D3 work. And it's also a topic that a lot of sort of 
where I'll just say most web developers have not used SVG in any sort of detailed manner, right? You might have used like an icon font or, you know, things like that, or maybe converted one of your graphics to an SVG. But in terms of like working with SVG and understanding how it works, that is sort of a missing piece for a lot of devs, I think. Um, and spoiler alert, I wrote a book that focuses on teaching the SVG aspects um, of the stuff because we recognized that that was sort of a missing piece. Um, and then the rest of the rest of the difficulty in learning, I think probably just comes from it being a pretty flat API um, and it using sort of domain specific terminology in places. And what I mean by that is, um, so the there's sort of two main concepts behind D3 that once you understand the concepts, it sort of makes the code samples and things that you look at make a lot more sense. And those concepts are scales and selections. Um, scales are just what D3 uses to sort of translate values from, you know, sort of the scope or um, world that they live in in your data and then translating that into the screen, right? If you are, um, if you're plotting test scores, the domain of your data is like the range of test scores, right? Like zero to the max score. And then you have a range of your scale that is sort of what D3 can turn that into. So you can essentially say to D3, I want you to create a scale that takes scores, you know, from zero to 100. And I want you to turn that into bars that have a width that is somewhere between zero and whatever, 800 pixels, because that's how wide my chart is. And so you set up these scales that sort of tell D3 how to translate values from, you know, sort of raw data land to the browser's visual uh, coordinate space and, and things like that. The other concept uh, that's a little bit weird uh, with D3 is selections. And that's sort of how you tell D3 where and how to build things. Um, I feel like maybe I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself, but essentially you have APIs that tell D3, you know, how you want it to construct this thing, where you want it to create an SVG tag, where you want it to create a rectangle. Um, and you there's some intricacies to sort of how you set that up. But once you learn it, it makes sense. And then there's like a million examples out there that you can learn from and you sort of know where to look and know how the different pieces are, are working. Okay. So backing up just a little bit before we got into those concepts. So is like learning more about SPD, is that something that I can learn at the same time as I'm learning D3 or is that like a prerequisite that I should have first? Um, I would say you need at least a crash course first. Um, otherwise, there's going to be some things that probably don't make sense. Um, when I say a crash course, like if you spent maybe an hour reading about SVG and sort of how the different coordinate spaces work, you'd probably be good to, you know, sort of get moving. Um, one of the sites that I love and I still refer to back to constantly is Sarah Swedon's site, who, you know, she's like a CSS ninja and expert, but she also has a lot of really great writing on SVG and how coordinate spaces and things work. So that's definitely a great, you know, free resource to learn about that. Um, and it's not like SVG is like this completely foreign thing. It just has some idiosyncrasies compared to like normal DOM stuff. Awesome. Thank you. 
Sure. When you say so, idiosyncrasies, how serious are you talking? Um, well, so the the big thing is that you once you go, so you create an SVG tag in your page, you know, just like you would anything else, a div or a button. But sort of once you go inside that SVG tag, you don't have the automatic layout model of the browser anymore. So everything within your SVG has to be explicitly positioned. So you may say, you know, I want an SVG that's 800 by 600. Well, okay, the browser is going to reserve that 800 by 600 square on your page. But if you start adding like circles and rectangles to your SVG tag, they're all going to be in the top left corner and they're just going to sit there and be black and nobody's going to know what it is. Um, so there's there are obviously ways to work around that because uh, everything in the top left corner doesn't really work. And so once you sort of understand that, it's just about understanding um, sort of how you do positioning and things within SVG. Um, and the way that you do that, SVG has a, a tag that is just G, the letter G, uh, which stands for group. And that's essentially the SVG equivalent of div. It's just sort of, you know, a, a nondescript way to group things and set their coordinate space. And so, um, you know, if you were to create a group and then put the group at, you know, XY of 100, 100, everything you draw inside of that group will start at 100, 100. And so you use that sort of mechanism to layer things and, and position them. Um, and then the last sort of wrinkle to the positioning is that you do all of the positioning with CSS transforms. And so to position a group tag um, at 100 by 100, you would set its um, translate, sorry, its transform attribute, and you would set its transform attribute to the CSS translate function and tell it where to go. Um, so that's <laughs> that's sort of a long-winded uh, way of, of, or description of the idiosyncrasies, but, and it probably sounds like gobbledygook here, but like, it's really not that much. Like I said, if you spent an hour or two maybe learning it, I feel like you would have a solid enough grasp of SVG to sort of move forward on D3. So thus far, we've been talking a lot about SVG, and I didn't realize that D3 required you to use SVG. Now, this isn't, uh, I had understood there are other ways to write in the browser. I mean, you've got the canvas and you even have WebGL and things. It, are you required to use SVG? Uh, so you're not required, but um, usually when you would, when somebody would say you're not required to use SVG with D3, what they would be saying, what they would be, alluding to is that you can also use it to create like divs and buttons and regular DOM elements. Um, and that's, you can actually do some, some really nice things with that. Um, but you're, you're talking more sort of other drawing targets and D3 can target uh, canvas elements. It's the API is pretty good in that a lot of your code can be sort of oblivious to which sort of context it's drawing to. Um, and there's really just, kind of a couple of extra calls that you need to add in to have D3 draw to a canvas instead of SVG. Um, the reason that most people don't target something like canvas is that um, you lose, you know, sort of the interaction model is not quite as easy because you're just dealing with a, a field of pixels, right? And so you have to do like all kinds of hit tests and, and things like that. Um, 
you tend to only go to canvas if you are dealing with like thousands and thousands of objects. If you draw, you know, 5,000 shapes in an SVG file or an SVG tag, um, it may start to chug a little bit, especially if you're trying to animate 5,000 shapes. Um, so you can target canvas in those uh, scenarios. You cannot currently uh, target WebGL with D3, as far as I know. Um, I, I'm fairly certain there's some libraries out there that try to port sort of similar APIs to WebGL, but I'm not, not entirely sure on that. Excellent. That helps me understand. So I, I'd never realized effectively Canvas is more of a power tool than SVG because with Canvas, you're thinking on a pixel by pixel basis versus SVG, which at some point uh, adds, adds that abstraction adds enough overhead that if you have thousands of instances, it's not going to scale very well. Yeah. Yeah. And that's real. So the, the limitation of Canvas is really with like the user interaction, because when you're dealing with SVG, you know, say you're drawing a, a bubble chart and you want to be able to roll over the bubbles and show, you know, a tooltip. Well, in SVG, you just add a, a rollover handler to that circle and you're done. Um, with Canvas, it would be a lot more involved because there is no circle element anymore, right? It's just a bunch of pixels and there's going to have to be some code to figure out what is under, you know, what are the pixels that are under the user's mouse right now? Is it a circle? Oh, okay, it is. Let me redraw the whole Canvas and show that tooltip. Um, so if you were using D3 to do something that was non-interactive, maybe it was just like a looping animated thing or, you know, something like that, um, that would be a, a great case to target Canvas because then you don't have to worry about interaction, but you still get the, you know, the good API and, and the speed. Um, but so, yeah, it's, it's always a matter of trade-offs, but generally people won't go to Canvas unless they have sort of hit a performance limit with uh, SVG. Okay. So can you also speak to my understanding of SVG is it's vector based. So it automatically scales effectively. SVG is uh, mathematical equations that describe how to draw something on the screen. So in that way, you can infinitely scale it without any kind of jaggies. Is, is that a valid description of SVG and how, how charts in uh, D3 are really infinitely scalable? Yeah, it really is. And that's that's a huge benefit of it. Um, so yeah, the SVG tag itself, like you said, is vector. And so everything is going to be scaled. Um, there is actually a utility function that a guy wrote years ago, um, a guy named Brendan Sudal. He wrote a function that essentially allows you to include his function and then add one line to your code and it will make your SVG tag completely responsive. And so what that means in this context is that your SVG tag will scale itself the way that SVGs need to be scaled. They have sort of a, a special way uh, when you're going to scale them, you have to sort of tell them how to scale and all that. But this utility function sort of abstracts all that and you just say, I want this SVG to be responsive. Um, and then that SVG will then fill its parent element regardless of the size of that element. And essentially what you end up with is a chart that is infinitely scalable, um, but you have, you have locked the aspect ratio. So if you draw your chart at 800 by 400, or sorry, 800 by 600, it's always gonna have that sort of four to three ratio, but it can be you know 20,000 pixels wide and it will still be completely crisp. That's a very powerful line of code. That's worth adding. <laughs> 
<laughs> it really is. It really is. What What was the name of that? Uh, so the the name of the function is called responsive phi. So like F Y on the end of responsive, um, okay. and it's on a guy from Brendan Sudal's site. I've also included. I think I've. I don't think I've blogged about it, but I've like included it on my mailing list and stuff because it's. I mean, it's a lifesaver and it's it's super valuable for basically every D three project you do. Okay, you just mentioned mailing lists. So, do you have a mailing list that's just for D three developers? I do. Yeah. So I um, about so I've been on my own as like an independent developer for about three and a half years now, um, and not quite a year ago, I really started focusing on the educational content. And what I ended up deciding to do was I put together a five day uh, email course totally for free that sort of tries to introduce those concepts uh, that I mentioned in the beginning that I feel are like the keys to learning um, D3. So you start off, you get an introduction, we introduce you all the concepts, and then you sort of build a basic bar chart um, in five daily lessons. And then once you finish that sort of initial five uh, email course, then I move you onto my weekly list. And then I send out a D3 tip once a week. That's usually, you know, it's like 500 to a thousand words. It's pretty short, just sort of how do I do X in D3 or how does this work in D3, that kind of thing. Um, and yeah, so that's, that's where that stuff is. When you start a new project, typically you need things like a domain name, hosting, things like that. When I choose hosting, I pick mine for the options it gives. I like to know what I'm getting and set things up just how I like them. This is why for your projects, you should check out Linode. Linode servers feature native SSD storage, a 40 gigabyte network, and Intel E5 processors. That's all the power you need to run VMs under full control or Docker containers, who doesn't love that, encrypted disks and VPNs. Plus they have 10 data centers across the world and add-ons like backups, node balancer, and Longview to help you control your server costs. They also offer block storage for your static files, and you can get started with a $20 credit if you use the code JavaScriptJabber2018. That credit is good for four months on their one gigabyte server. That's a lot of time to try them out and see if they're the right fit for you. That code again is JavaScriptJabber2018. Also, if you're interested in working for Linode, they're hiring. Head to linode.com careers to see their available positions. Awesome. I'm a big fan of those sorts of things. I feel like uh, email has sort of replaced RSS as the standard way to keep up on things. Yeah. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know, for better or worse, but nonetheless, I, I've found subscribing to JavaScript and, and React mailing lists is a really great way to stay updated. So, so I didn't realize there was something like this for D3. So sounds like good stuff. Yeah, great. I'll look forward to seeing you on there soon. <laughs> I have a lot to learn. <laughs> I do have a few questions and, and you can... T- I, I guess I'll just come out and ask, and you can say if this is if it's true or not true, and if it is true, kind of what are the complexities? But I've heard people say that specifically when using D three with React, that there's some overlap there, and so things can get a little bit tricky. Since we have probably tons of listeners that use React, is that the case? Um. Well, so where the I I, I hesitate to use the term, but where the trickiness comes in is that. You know, obviously React, its sort of defining feature is that you specify in your component what sort of markup should be returned and rendered, right? Um, but D3 sort of does the same thing. You call D3 APIs and it it doesn't return you like an object about what it's going to do. It modifies the DOM. 
Um, and so you have that sort of overlap in their responsibilities and you can choose sort of which way fits your workflow best, I think, to decide where to divide that line. I have definitely seen people use D3 just to sort of calculate those scales that I mentioned and do sort of the, you know, the translations of values. And then they sort of feed those things into their regular uh, render method and still let React you know, control all of the all of the markup that gets created. It's kind of my uh, gut reaction. That seems like the best option, but is that not always the best? Um, I would say that's probably the best option for uh, things that are fairly straightforward and simple. Um, I, I shouldn't say simple. That is probably the best solution for most things. Um, I could see there being certain scenarios where you may want to just have your React code generate like, you know, a placeholder div. And then you essentially say, this div belongs to D3. D3 is responsible for what's in here. You know, I'm just going to have React make sure that that div is there. And then D3 can target it. Um, the When you would make that choice would, would I think, probably vary depending on, you know, what your use case and scenario was. But... I feel like those are sort of the two main options. Okay, that makes a lot more sense now. Yeah, it's not scary. It's just a matter of figuring out how you want to do it and then and then drawing that dividing line. Not a not a big deal. Okay. So, one of my other questions um like most people it seems like um are using D3 and pairing that up with some other kind of like data analytics stuff. So like a lot of people um, would use this with like certain databases. Like, I don't know. I think at a place that I was working at at one point, we're using D3 along with some stuff that was coming out of uh, a Vertica, uh, database called Vertica. Um, and then a lot of people yeah, like use it for, I don't know, just with other things. So are there like certain pairings that go really well with it? Um, I've honestly not heard of any specific pairings. Um, D3 has some methods and things built in. Like if you, if you just want to use plain D3 by itself, it has methods built in to like go and fetch JSON from somewhere and bring it back and parse it and that kind of thing. Um, but besides that, I mean, you can sort of just feed it with data however you want, you know, it's going to expect probably arrays and objects and things like that. And so how you get to those things probably doesn't have a whole lot of bearing on on how uh, you know your your data is structured coming in so on my current team uh, we have a number of react components that use d3 behind the scenes to create charts uh, and so that's sort of our abstraction with a recognition that we didn't feel like it was realistic for everyone on our team to be d3 experts so we said what if we just we decide this is our pie chart, this is our bar chart, um, and, and now we have this nice, simple API to interact with that interacts, it really enforces our opinions using a React component. Uh, mm -hmm. And that's one way to go, but I've also seen that there seems to be literally dozens of charting libraries out there that I would characterize as higher level than D3. Um, what I don't know is, are a lot of those using D3 behind the scenes. And when I choose to use something like that, I assume what I'm getting is something that's a little more approachable 
and opinionated, but I'm also losing a lot of D3's power. Is, is that fair? Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a great assessment. Um, some lab, some of the libraries out there are built on top of D3 and then others aren't. Um, a couple of the ones that I know are built on top of D3. Um, in terms of React space, there's Victory from Formidable Labs. And as far as I know, it's it's very popular. It's very well done. And you can do just about anything you want with it. Um, it uses D3 behind the scenes, but I think they've you know just put enough time and care into it that the API is really pretty exposed pretty pretty wholly um there are some other libraries uh there was one called c3 there was one called nvd3 um a few others that were built on top of d3 and yeah it's just it's somebody sort of recognizing that they could make this code a little bit more approachable um the non-d3 options that come to mind are like there's i mean there's google charts there's high charts high charts is a pay it, it's a commercial license um but you know, I I sort of <laughs> that that fear that that you have of like I'm I'm taking on somebody else's interpretation of this and I'm only going to be able to do what they say I can do. That fear is sort of what always drove me back to D3, right? Because I didn't want to choose a library for my project, bring it in, you know, get it approved or whatever, and then down the road the designer says well, let's make the chart look like this. And I go, oh, you can't do that in this library. Like they didn't expose that part of the API or, you know, whatever the case is. And that's why I always ended up going with the lower level things. But if you are starting an app and you just know that you're going to need a lot of common charts like bar charts and pie charts and bubble charts and whatever, by all means, evaluate the the libraries out there. You know, Victory can probably meet your needs um, or you know, any of the other, or a few of the other options, but, you know, it's just a matter of sort of how, how confident are you that, that, that you're not going to outgrow that and how painful will it be if you do outgrow it? Excellent. That makes sense to me. Cool. So I'm sure you've seen a lot of people learn D3 and obviously you, you learned it yourself. What do you think makes learning D3 hard? Uh, Cause it does have that reputation. Um, I think other than sort of just the APIs being uh, numerous, we'll call them, there you end up seeing a lot of different pieces of the API in any given example. Um, but beyond the APIs itself, I think what throws a lot of developers is uh, D3 is a declarative API. And if you're not familiar with the term declarative, um, the sort of 10 second explanation that I understand is that imperative code is when you tell a computer how to do something, right? Like if you write a for loop and you tell it how much to increment that counter by every time and yada, yada, that's imperative code. If you write a array dot map function, that is uh, declarative code because you're just saying, I want you to run this function on everything in this array and I don't care how you do it. And so, D3's APIs are mostly declarative in that you don't write any loops. You just say, you essentially just say, hey, D3, I want you to target this DOM element over here, and this is my data, and this is how I want you to, um, this is what I want you to do each time you come across an object in that data. I want you to create a new div, and I want you to set these attributes on it based on this, these parts of my data you figure out the rest. And that's all you do. You tell it, 
exactly that. You give it those parameters and it goes and figures out, you know, what elements does it need to create? What CSS styles does it need to create? What markup attributes does it need to create? And it handles all that for you. Um, and you can sort of be shielded from the messiness. When I say messiness, where that really comes into play is um, SVG paths, like complex curves and things in SVG um, is, I mean, the markup for that is not human readable. It's like this mini language that only a computer can understand. And D3 shields you from that because you can essentially just say, I want you to draw me a line. Here's my data for my line. Here's like the function I want you to run to find the X position of the line. And here's the function I want you to run for the Y position. You take care of the rest. And it does all the conversion into, you know, this crazy syntax that SVG paths use. Does that make so, sense? Yeah, it does. Um, yeah, I, I think if I were to summarize it, it's uh, for people that are familiar with the DOM, um, that's that's part of the the friction is it's just very different than other technologies out there. I think the minute that you jump into SVG or Canvas, any kind of a drawing paradigm, it's there, you have a harder time drawing parallels with the HTML DOM that you've been so used to when you're doing web development. So that, that yeah. to me is, is probably the core. Um, I did find it interesting though, that you described a declarative API to me is, is typically um, easier to use because I end up writing less code, but I guess also uh, that assumes that I understand the vernacular because a declarative API is going to have jargon in it and magic will happen when I make a command. Um, mm -hmm. Unlike a more imperative API where it's more low level and I, you would, one would assume I would know those core commands and then I would weave things together in a way that's more transparent. So, yeah, I, yeah. I, I, I can see the give and take there. No, great answer. Thank you. Great. Awesome. Amy, were you going to say something? Yeah. So I had um, like another different question. Uh, sure. D3 has been around for a while. Is there anything, mm -hmm. if people haven't looked at it in a while, because I... It's been at least like two, two and a half years since I've looked at it. Is there anything new that people should kind of be excited about that they might want to give it another look? Um, so D3 version five just was released, or it may actually not even be out of beta, Was has just been released in the last couple of weeks. Uh, feel free to ignore that. Ignore V5 for the foreseeable future. Uh, it didn't change a ton of things. But there were some API changes that you know um, made it so that it had to be a major. So learn D3 version four. Um, if you have done so, version four came out probably about two years ago or something like that. So if you looked at it more than two years ago, you likely saw version three. Version three was around for a really long time, so you probably saw version three. Um, version four sort of cleaned up the API a little bit. It made things a little bit flatter. So instead of saying like d3.scale.linear, uh, you would just say d3.scale.linear, which sort of sounds like a minor thing, but it really helps when you're talking in terms of, of uh, code completion, right? If you've got code completion in your editor, that'll show you a lot of options that you've got in the... Yeah, editor. definitely. The intelligence there would be a lot nicer. Yeah, yeah. And the, I mean, the other thing I have to say about D3 is that the docs are phenomenal. I mean, I, I have to refer back to the docs still on a fairly regular basis. And they are, I mean, extraordinarily good and thorough and really explain every method. Um, 
And so that's another reason I feel like if you just learn these core concepts of like, oh, okay, I have to create these scales and selections so that it sort of has what it needs, everything else you can look up. Like if you, you know, you're not sure on the syntax or how something works, you can look that up and the docs are phenomenal at explaining how to actually use it. I feel like my question wasn't that great either. I should say, like, don't just use something. I mean, if you're going to play with it because you're excited about it, that's one thing. But don't just like use a tool. <laughs> use a tool unless it's like, <laughs> unless it's like actually solving a problem that you have. And then I guess the other like part of that question was just like, if people were having pain points, you know, a couple of years ago, had anything changed that would have alleviated any of those like community pain points? Um, I don't know how much has changed in terms of alleviating pain points. Um, there's another library out there called D3 Jetpack that um, I think primarily one guy, Adam Pierce, who's at the New York Times, put together, and it's sort of it's it's sort of like a um, what's the word I'm looking for here? It's like a guided intro to to D3. You know, it sort of um, condenses some of the things instead. It condenses multi-step things in plain D3 into like one where you can just say like, I want to chart this this by this, put it in here, that kind of thing. Um, So I don't know that the library has changed a ton around it, but there's, I think there's definitely been a growth in sort of the tools and community around it. You've, I'm sure, looked at a lot of people's D3 code. Uh, What would you say are the most common mistakes that people are making with D3? Oh, that is a good question. Um, so sort of without getting too deep into the woods here, uh, when you do animation with D3, which by the way, it makes incredibly easy. Um, a lot of times adding animation is a matter of adding like one or two lines of code and it just sort of figures out that you want things to animate. Um, but, uh, well, I just totally lost my train of thought. What was <laughs> what was the question? The question was, what are the uh, common mistakes that you see when you look at other people's D3 code? Right. Thank you. Uh, so when you are creating an animation with D3, you have to be concerned with something called object constancy, which basically just means between the first render and the second render, you have to make sure that it knows to use the same DOM element for the same piece of data, right? You do, if you have a bar chart and you're switching between subjects, you want the bars to grow to their to grow or shrink to their new size, not like the bar for Sally becomes the bar for Jimmy and you know that they swap around and that kind of thing. So there are some things about sort of how you feed your data to D3 and you have to give it this extra function that sort of tells it how to do that mapping. Um, and it can be a tricky concept to get your head around. I still get confused about it from time to time. Um, and if you are unaware of that or screw that up, then elements can sort of go haywire. Um, so I think that was a big one. I mean, other than that, I think it's just learning the APIs and, and how to use them. You know, if you're, if you're sort of just going out and grabbing an example and you're going to hack on it without any sort of underlying knowledge of how D3 works, it's going to be really hard to understand like what's wrong. But when you learn those baseline things, you can see like, oh, okay, this bar is is too long. Like it's running off the page. My scale must be wrong. Like, because I know that my scale is what controls the size of things. So let me go dig in there. So that sort of thing of just being a little bit more familiar and sort of knowing what the pieces are for, I think is a, a big thing that will avoid a lot of like, 
head scratching and why the hell doesn't this work? Excellent. Uh, so if somebody is new to D3, do you have some resources you'd recommend for learning it? I absolutely do. <laughs> um, so my my email course that I put together that I mentioned earlier is at d3in5days.com. And if you do slash JS Jabber, you'll get a special JS Jabber page there. Um, so those are both of the numbers in there are actual numbers. So it's d3in5days.com slash JS Jabber. Um, and what you'll get there is a five-day email course. You get the first one right away and then one more each day for five days. That introduces all the basics to you. And then after that, uh, you get moved into that weekly list that I mentioned. There is, not surprisingly, an upsell down the road uh, for my SVG book that I wrote. Um, but you are absolutely not obligated to, to learn that. The, you know, By all means, take the five-day course, stay on the weekly list and get tips and keep it at that. Um, other than that, just the D3JS site itself is fantastic, um, both in terms of it'll lead you to the docs. Uh, all the docs are just on GitHub in readmes, um, but it's, it's all linked really well. Um, but there's also a ton of examples on the D3 site that you can use to see various you know, uses of D3. And a lot of those examples go to what is just referred to as a block in the D3 community. Um, Mike Bostock, the guy that created D3, created these things called blocks, which essentially let you write a gist um, and then have it rendered. And people use those for D3 examples. And so you can see these blocks where you see the rendered output uh, at the top of the page, and then you see all the source below it. And if you want to play with it, you click on the link, you go over to the gist, you mess with the code, and it's all right there. Um, and then lastly, there is a site called blockbuilder. I think it's .org. It may be .com. Um, but that's essentially the same exact thing, Where, but it's all in line. So you have the code on one side of the page, the output on the other. You can tinker with it. It uses gists behind the scenes so you can share it with people and you know send things back and forth. Those are all really great resources for learning um, just you know, you're going to have a thousand, literally a thousand examples in front of you of like thumbnails, and then you click on one and it takes you and shows you the source. So great, great resources. Beautiful. That sounds perfect. And it's interesting that you mentioned that too, because I'm a big believer in learning by example. Um, and Kathy Sierra mentioned that recently, that that's really what we need are lots of different examples, because so many people learn by picking an example apart and tinkering with it. Uh, and uh, Pure docs by themselves are often not enough to connect the dots for people. So that's great to hear. Yeah, the 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 amount of open source examples out there to learn from is is really really impressive. Excellent. Yeah, be sure to share those links with me so we we can get all those into the show notes for you. Yeah, for sure. All right. So uh, anything else that we should cover, or are we ready to jump to picks? Not for me. I'm ready for picks. I'm good. Excellent. All right. Uh, Amy, you want to start us off with picks? Do you run your own freelance business? Or maybe you're thinking about picking up some business on the side. Well, then you need FreshBooks. FreshBooks is the quickest and easiest way to get invoices out to your clients. It's easy to use. It works anywhere, available from any device, uh, on the desktop, iPhone, iPad, Android, and all of your data is backed up and secure. And it makes it really easy to get organized and get paid. You'll be tracking time, logging expenses, and invoicing your clients in no time. You can also save time billing 
freeing up several days per month to focus on the work that you love, and you get paid faster. FreshBooks customers are paid on average five days faster because there's a link on the invoice that says pay me now. And it's a great way to grow your business. Plus, FreshBooks is offering a 30-day trial. That's right, 30-day trial if you try them out. So go to gofreshbooks.com slash devchat and enter devchat in the how did you hear about us section. Once again, for a 30-day trial, go to gofreshbooks.com slash devchat and enter devchat in the how did you hear about us section. Sure. So the first one, this is really good, and I feel like maybe... I will read a portion of it, but um, it's a blog post on Medium, how to use technical debt in your favor. And uh, I've been thinking a lot lately about like, as as a newer developer, it, I feel like it, it wasn't stressed enough, like how you really want to take an incremental approach to things. So that's what I really liked about this blog. It says, traditional organizations assume you have to work towards the best design the first time. However, it's impossible to know what a good design is unless you know all the requirements to be able to see the patterns. This process takes time. So um, the blog post just kind of like expands on that. But I thought it's a, I don't know, what does it say on Medium, how long it's going to take to read. But I don't know. It was maybe like a five-minute read or something like that. But it was really, really, really good. So I'll put a link to that in the show notes. And then I've really been trying to get back onto uh, like the meditation train because I've been really bad about doing it lately. So um, I've been doing that a bunch more again and to that ex- to that end, um, I think I was like my peak my my interest in neuroscience has peaked again. So uh, it's just a Twitter account called uh, Neuroscience News, and I don't know. I just like I find all these stories are uh, just fascinating to read. So it's a cool Twitter account to follow, and that's it for me. Great. All right, Joe, you have any picks? Sure. So I recently read a great blog post, quite short, easy read, by the fantastic and always entertain educational Dr. Uh, Axel Roshmeyer, right? Just one of the best blogs that's out there. He wrote a recent blog post on JavaScript versus TypeScript versus ReasonML. You stole my pick. Ah, did I really? <laughs> <laughs> Axel's awesome, so I'm not surprised. Yeah, great post. Yeah, so fantastic post. Uh, absolutely worth a read. Nice short read, uh, but very informative, as all his posts are. And then when you're done with that, just go read the rest of his stuff and become an amazing programmer because he's, and the guy's just awesome. So that's my pick. JavaScript versus TypeScript versus Reason ML. Good stuff. All right, Ben, uh, what picks do you have? Uh, so I started a new project recently, and we are going to be using web workers very, very heavily. Um, in case you're not familiar or don't want to get confused, web workers are not service workers. So it's not about PWAs. It's about like offloading heavy computation stuff, uh, off of the main thread so that you don't lock up your UI. And in the course of sort of learning those and how we're going to integrate them into the app, I discovered a amazing library, uh, from actually somebody at Google. The library is called Comlink. And it's on GitHub. If you just search GitHub for Comlink, I'm sure it'll come up. And essentially what it does is it lets you proxy your web workers. um, And then they're just like regular async functions and objects. And so instead of having to do all kinds of crazy like post message and callback stuff, you just end up with this object that is 
a web worker and it, it'll it'll spawn things and, and all that. And you can even write, um, I wrote a small utility around it that lets you create a function that every time that function is invoked, it will spawn a new web worker, do its work and send back the result asynchronously. So it's pretty awesome stuff. Um, I don't understand how it works exactly under the hood, uh, not yet at least, but great link or a great library there called Comlink. Good stuff. All right. Uh, I'll wrap up with uh, my picks, although I have one less since Joe stole mine. But yeah, go read Axel's post. Uh, I came across a React cheat sheet that is very well done, concise, super useful uh, out there on GitHub. So uh, I will share that one. Uh, quick read, but well worth looking over again, probably refreshing on a few things you might have forgotten. And then I also came across a uh, great talk by Hasib Qureshi called Why Software Engineers Disagree on Everything, which is definitely uh, true. I've, I've seen plenty of uh, arguments. And so he does a really good job uh, talking about the psychology behind this and also provides some good actionable advice uh, in this talk. It's only about 30 minutes long. It's from uh, RailsConf here recently. Uh, so those are my two picks. Uh, Chuck is not here, so I can't ask him about picks, but uh, I think that brings us to a wrap. Uh, ben, thank you for coming on. This was a great show. Thanks for having me. Had a good time. And everybody, thanks for listening. Bye. Bye. See ya. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more.